Paul Bergs, it's, a, it's great to get these updates and hear what's going on in the life of the church and in the, in the house churches. Well, today we continue in our study out of the book of Daniel. Uh, so if you've been with us here for this study, it's been, it's been exciting. It's a, it's a great book where you really get to go through all these historical narratives that are so well known. Now we enter into this section of the book with the visions and the dreams and you know, it's really underappreciated, understudied types of things, and it's exciting to be able to, uh, to go through this in this context today. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to Daniel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, now's a good time to get a Bible. They're available on Amazon. <laughs> There's stuff in the aisles. You can download an app. Uh, it's good to have a Bible with you, but we'll also have it on the screen as we go through it. But in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse, in verse 1. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. The story, right? This is interesting. We just came from these historical narratives of Daniel Right, and even those were pretty fantastical of being thrown into fires and coming out alive. And but now, right, we get into this, these dreams and these images, and the narrator goes back in time. Right, like we've already gone through the life of Daniel. He's gone through that time of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was that king who was weighed and found wanting, and then death right on his doorstep with the the, the Medes. And we got all the way through with with Cyrus and the Persians. But now we go back. He wants us to bring us back to earlier in his life, to during this time, during Belshazzar, where he had this dream. And it's these visions. And and what we have to kind of realize is when we get into this type of literature, it's all very apocalyptic, right? Very end-of-the-world scenarios. Visions and dreams and imagery of the end times and what it'll look like. And as we read these, right, it's, it's really like reading almost like fantasy novels 
Right? It's almost like reading Lord of the Rings where there's dragons and Nazgul's and like, what are these? What, are the, what is this? Right? There are no beasts like this on the earth. Right? We know that. There are no leopards like this, lions like this, bears like this, horns. Right? Like, it, it's difficult for us to understand. And so we're really entering <clears throat> for the next couple of weeks this realm of visions and metaphors. And we're supposed to see in this one, we're supposed to be terrified. This is a frightening vision. It starts with the sea, this just sea of monsters, and the monsters just coming out of this, this sea. And the sea at that time, right, is, is a place of just chaos, right? This is a place that where all evil things come. And they're terrifying, not because necessarily because of what they look like, but they're terrifying because of what they represent. And the sea and anything coming out of the sea in the ancient world was evil, And so you know that whatever these beasts have in store, it's evil. That whatever their intentions are, it's to work against God. And that they are going to promote chaos and destruction. And you look at them, and it's a parade of more and more frightening animals. First with this lion that has the head of an eagle and wings, and they're ripped off, and it becomes like a man. And then a bear that's either deformed or raised up in the sense of it's ready to strike with ribs of its last animal, right? Still in its mouth, dripping with blood. You can just see the imagery of this bear that's told to just devour and eat. And then you have that leopard with the strength and speed. Part bird, four heads, can see everything. Nothing is going to escape it. Nothing will be able to outrun it. Nothing is going to be able to avoid this. And then the final beast is supposed to be the most terrifying of them all, and it can't even be fully described in terms of earthly animals, right? He has to resort to these horns. It's a, it's a beast that has tremendous strength, massive strength, that iron representing strength, and a horn. A horn in the ancient world represented just strength and power, so this has 10 times the strength and the power of any creature that has ever come. And even in that strength and the power, it has one horn. One part of it is stronger than the rest and rises up and devours the other. It's, it's, it's unparalleled in terms of its strength. These beasts are clearly meant to terrify us. Daniel is meant to be terrified by the dream, and he writes this down for the reader to be terrified at the images of these things. They will be working against God. These beasts and these monsters, these visions, they are going to be working against him. They're going to be working against his people. It's not just that they are scary to look at, but it's their intentions that should frighten us. Because we know right from the beginning that these beasts will be working against God and working to devour his people. The reader can't help, right, but by identify, try to identify the beasts with the rulers and the kingdoms that are around them. Daniel's going to do that. His readers are going to do that. We do that as we read them. And this vision tells us, right, that our world is being run by a succession of evil and more terrifying kingdoms and kings all the way through. And then the temptation for us and the temptation for them, it's every Christian who's ever read Daniel has tried to do this, the temptation right, is to try to find which historical kingdom is each beast. Because the, the dream will be interpreted for us, and we'll talk about these are kingdoms, and so it's easy to look at them and try to make them kingdoms and historical kingdoms at that. It's easy to try to say, 
okay, this one is Rome, this one is Greece, this one is Persia. The problem with that is it goes against the intention that the author has. It's intended to be a vision of the end of the world. If we make the beasts historical kingdoms that have already happened, right, then we, we're not reading it properly. We're not looking to the future. We're, still not, we're not looking to the end of all things. Rather, it's intended to terrify us. It's intended to terrify the reader of any age. Right? You, you're supposed to see this and be terrified because the presence of the beasts are continual. But the narrator and the story doesn't end with just the vision of the beasts. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked. Then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the dream quickly switches to this terrifying image of the beast, to now to this image of the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, to this heavenly court, this picture of God himself in purity and in wisdom. This white hair, meaning this purity, this, the power and flames on his throne, his throne like a chariot that is on fire, flames issuing forth from him and from his throne. I mean, just this amazing image of him, the Ancient of Days, as the true judge with the power and authority and the ability to destroy anyone he needs to destroy. Like his judgments are not going to be idle, right? There is fire around him. And it's really remarkable, this whole kind of section of the Bible, if you've ever read the Old Testament up until this kind of point, in those earlier sections of the Old Testament, it's amazing actually, right? It's striking that Daniel is even describing God. When you think about the Pentateuch, when you think about those Old Testament passages, I mean, Moses, he doesn't even want to look at God, let alone describe him. I mean, God is undescribable. They won't even want to speak his name fully. Right? They don't want to give you an image of God. If they talk about who God is, they say, yeah, God is the eternal. They talk about His characteristics. They talk about the things of Him. But to give us an image of God, whoa, <laughs> like what is going on? Why would this be happening? Why, are the, why would a Jew now be getting a picture of God and not just having a vision, a picture of this God, but actually describing Him? 
I mean, it's, re- it's remarkable. And it really kind of tells us, right, it's, it's pointing out to us that at this period of time, right, and the need for all of us and the readers then, the readers now, but Daniel has to get to this fantastical image. It has, he has to do something to draw our imaginations away, to draw our minds towards God, to think of Him in a way that the people have not been thinking of Him, right, to correct this lack of imagination, or at least this small picture, is to draw our attentions away from the kings and the kingdoms of this world, right, and I think this is on purpose that this is happening during the reign of Belshazzar, who is trying to puff himself up, trying to create that, remember that feast with all of the goblets and all of the vessels and all of these things, and whew, this king pales, Belshazzar pales in comparison to this king, to the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne with power and glory and fire. But the ancient isn't alone. And that's even more puzzling in the story, right? Because with him, with him comes one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. It's a puzzling picture to Daniel, and he even says that. I was greatly puzzled and disturbed. Not at the judgment of the beasts, that's great, but puzzled and disturbed over the Son of Man who arrives, this person who appears human, like a Son of Man. And this, that phrase will be used in Daniel, it's going to be used in Ezekiel and nowhere else in the Old Testament, but this idea that it's someone who is very much a human, or at least very much like a human, or at least shares human qualities, doesn't just look like a human, but actually has humanity in them, something unique to them. But while this human shows up riding on the clouds, which is a huge symbol of divine authority and power, something coming on the clouds is not a normal thing. But for a human to arrive on the clouds and the Ancient of Days, God Himself hands over authority to this man. That He receives not just authority, just not like just all the kings have so far, but he will actually also receive all of the worship of all of the people, all of the nations, all of the languages. Everyone will worship him. He's given the authority that belongs to the Ancient of Days, gives it to the Son of Man, and then all of the created world will worship this Son of Man. And then he will be given an everlasting and indestructible dominion a kingdom, and this, the kingdom that's supposed to belong to God Himself, the Ancient of Days, is given to the Son of Man. It's an amazing picture. The chapter should end. <laughs> that, that, that would be a good ending to the chapter. The vision of the beasts, their destruction, and the Son of Man reigning in glory and getting all of the worship and power that he's deserved. But it doesn't end there. If you keep reading, in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever 
forever and ever. Daniel's still not done. (laughs) Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." I mean, the focus of this chapter has not been on the beasts. It was trying to direct us to the Ancient of Days, but Daniel right, just keeps going back to the beasts, and he's disturbed. He's disturbed by the image of the beast. He's disturbed by the image of the Son of Man, and so he goes to the angel and asks for further clarification. Right, like, yeah, 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 the whole Ancient of Days thing is great, but tell me about the beasts. Who's who? Who's who? Which is which? How do I know? And the angel again replies to him. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, And shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The angel really helps to draw us back, right? The angel is the interpretation here of all the visions and keeps telling us these things. And he keeps focusing on it, right? The four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. And he has to repeat it, yes, Daniel, forever and ever, and it will never be taken away. The angel has no interest in identifying the beasts. He doesn't go into any details, doesn't go into the specifics about who's who, like the fourth beast really is, yep, get ready for, this, for the Romans to come. He doesn't tell us these things. He's not interested in it. But rather, the angel continually focuses Daniel back to the eventual victory of the saints. But Daniel presses, and he keeps pressing, especially with the fourth beast. And the angel gives a very vague reply that could mean almost any cruel kingdom, And there's so many kingdoms historically that have fit this description of that fourth beast. And I think that's very intentional. That you could see it, you can see the beasts in the history of humanity, in the history of the church, and you can see the beasts now, and we can certainly see the beasts in the future. 
They're very vague. And the angel continues to redirect Daniel. And you can just kind of hear the angel telling Daniel, you're like, Daniel, you're missing the point. Yes, yes, the horn is going to assault God's people. It will be an incredibly trying time for the saints. But look beyond the horn. Look beyond the beast. Look beyond the monsters. The point of the vision is that the time when the beast will oppress the saints is limited. Beyond it lies the scene of the heavenly court where the beast will finally be tamed and destroyed. That there will be a day when the sovereignty, power, and greatness of God will be handed over to the saints, to the people of the Most High, and the kingdom of God will never end. But Daniel doesn't fully get it. Right, and that's what he says at the end. I, didn't, I don't understand this fully. I'm going to keep the matter to myself. I will write these things down, but I don't understand. And really, in a lot of ways, we are in much the same boat as Daniel. When Daniel says, right, as for me, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I mean, this is really a similar response to most of us, that most of us have to this kind of apocalyptic literature, to these types of images in Scripture. I don't know if you've read Daniel recently or the middle parts of Daniel. People don't like to read this middle section of Daniel, the visions and the dreams, because it's confusing. It's alarming. It's troubling. Or people don't like to read the book of Revelation because it's so difficult to interpret. And that's going to be great when George comes in a few weeks to, to preach through Revelation. But it's, it's imagery that we don't understand. It's pictures that we don't fully get and we get confused by it and so historically right the readers of these texts look to try to find fulfillments in them very quickly and you say okay well I want to know right because that takes away the scariness if I can actually know which kingdom is which beast then I can kind of understand things better all right if that was the Greeks and that one was the Romans okay good all of that's done. <laughs> All of that's passed. I don't have to worry about the beasts anymore. Now I just got to worry about, right, and look forward to the rapture one day or when things get good. Or, or, or we look to the future completely too and say like, all right, well now things are going pretty good, but I'm looking for the rise of this Antichrist. Yeah, that must be the beast. Right? They use Revelation to interpret Daniel, which is really unfair. Or you say like, all right, well this must be this kingdom that's about to come. Or, you know, this must be it. I remember growing up, in the early 90s, Gulf War, late 80s, I remember people talking about that, you know, that Gorbachev was the little horn and things like that, like, what? Or that the that Black Hawk helicopters flying across Iraq was the locus of Joel, and it's a, here's this and that. You, know, you want to be able to identify all of these prophecies because it really puts you in control and it gives you this hope. But no, right? the, the, the author is very clear we're supposed to be like Daniel. We're supposed to be perplexed. We're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to easily identify the beast to different things. Rather, we are supposed to view this. And the, the message of Daniel 7 is actually very straightforward. It's actually not that confusing. Right? If we look at the text, and if we, don't, if we look past the beast, right, it actually becomes very, very clear that until, until the final day, the very end of all things, the 
the apocalypse, right? That until the very end, when the Son of Man is going to come, this world will be ruled by monsters. That's the message. That until that day, we've got beasts and we have got monsters ruling over us. That every government, every nation is a fulfillment of this vision. That there are no such things as Christian nations. There are no such things as true Christian kings. They're all imposters. Every king, every kingdom, every ruler is an imposter. They're not true. They're not the true king. This kingdom is not the true king. No matter how good it looks, right? All of them have been given positions of power and authority by God. That's very clear through Daniel. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, all of them. Every king, every government, every ruler has been put there by God. That's going to be consistent through all of Scripture. And so we submit to them. And we love them, and we seek their welfare, and we work, and we please, and all those things, because God is in control, and He's put them in these positions over us. Even when they're evil, God is in control of it. God has put them in the positions they are. But don't mistake them, right? They're beasts. They're monsters. It's not the true kingdom. They're not our true king. The true king and the true kingdom is still coming. At best, at best, they're placeholders, right? Because we've had some rulers and some that are good. I mean, like, you just think of the history of Israel even, right? And that's kind of also what the Old Testament really wants to show you. Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's this, right, horrible king, is actually a much better king than the Israelite kings, right? But at best, even in the best Israelite king, it's just a placeholder, right? It's just a point to the eventual king who will come. At our best, when America is at its greatest it's just a placeholder. It's never meant to provide us the peace and the security and the hope that we are looking for. We're supposed to walk away from Daniel 7. The reader is supposed to walk away from Daniel 7 and rethink things, reimagine the world. That's why it's so fantastical, the language and the imageries with all of these made-up fantasy beasts and the image of God on the throne and all those. It's made up. These are made-up images so that we will start to really rethink things, to wake us up, to try to reimagine the truth, to look around us, to reimagine the world and to think about it properly, to see the way the world really is, and to imagine the way that this world will be when the Son of Man arrives. But it's a difficult process. It's a very difficult process to do. It's very difficult to see the world properly. It's very difficult to see this vision properly. Daniel was perplexed, especially by the image of the Son of Man. We're a little less perplexed, right? We have an easier time living in the age that we do and having the Bible and all of these things in the New Testament. That ancient of days in the Son of Man, we have the benefit of seeing the partial fulfillment of the vision. Daniel was terrified, but for us, we know the identity of the man that he saw. Right? We know who that is, the Son of Man. The Son of Man will be the title that Jesus takes for himself through the Gospels. And that's not a coincidence that he takes that term for himself. And it's a perfect title for Jesus when Jesus lives. That the Son of Man, it really carries with it that this, he is just simply, merely human. Look at this guy. He's just a man. He's the son of a man. 
And you see that in Christ's life, his humility and his function, the way he eats, the way he sleeps. He grows tired and weary, very human, ministering to the prostitute and the tax collector, wasting his time blessing children when he could have been doing great work. He's just a simple human. But at the same time, you see with Christ and you see in his life, while he is merely a human, he is full of the glory of God, has the authority and the recipient of all worship and praise. He has the authority and the power to forgive sin. Nothing more offensive than that. Who are you to forgive sins? (laughs) He's given the authority. Just this simple human has the authority to forgive sin. The simple, mere human can calm storms, can drive out demons, can receive praise and worship from everything. Who died in our place and rose to secure us life, right? I mean, who, we've been talking about this already with Daniel, right? Who goes through the furnace for me, who goes through the temptation for me, who gives me all of these things. But that's also not the ending of the story. And it's not the ending of the New Testament. It's not the end of the gospel. I think functionally for most of us, and for myself included, I mean, I think for for many Christians, functionally our Bibles end at the gospels, right? It ends kind of at his resurrection, and we say, end of story. Jesus died for me. He saves me. He gives me new life. He's taken away my sin, and I know I'm going to heaven, (laughs) and then that's it. But the full story is that he's coming again. That that was just a partial, it was just a partial fulfillment of the prophecy. Christ has come and he died and he rose, but he is coming again. That he will come again in power. He will come again in judgment and in glory that the Son of Man will descend on the clouds and he will rule over this world. We lose sight of this. It's easy to lose sight of this. We don't often think of Jesus as the conquering king whose kingdom will have no end. We don't think of that often. We are confronted by my sin. I'm, I'm reminded of my sin all the time. And so I remember how Christ died for me. And I know those things. And I put on Christ and all that. But I, I lose sight. Right? My imagination, I, can't, I have a hard time thinking of what it'll look like for him to come and what happens to us, right? When we lose sight of Christ as the conquering king, if we lose sight of the fullness of the gospel, the ending, if we lose sight of the end of the story, well, we lose sight of this earth oftentimes, right? We put all of our hope into heaven and we put zero hope into this world. And so we retreat, we ignore, we pretend, right? That we just let it go bad. Or we put too much effort into this world, right? thinking that it's our job to do all this work. If we forget that it's Christ's job, that He's going to come and He's going to redeem the world, He's going to make everything new again, then we think it's up to us to do, and we put a lot, a lot of effort into it. How can I live with hope in a future but see this world clearly? Right? How are we going to be able to live a life in this world, ruled by beasts and monsters, but not lose hope. 
We have to have the gospel before us. We have to have these images before us. Right? These images, this vision section of Daniel, it helps to explain to you Daniel. Remember, because you really read those opening narratives and you're like, how is this guy doing this? <laughs> how can he serve a king like Belshazzar? How can he serve a king like Darius? How can this guy do this work? How does he not just lose hope? How can he actually serve Babylonians, the people who destroyed his family and his homeland, how does he do this every day? Well, he has in front of him an image, a picture of the ending of the story. He knows that this right now is not the end. He knows that God is in control, that God is redeeming it and will redeem it. He knows that all of his work is not in vain. He knows that everything he does in this life will be rewarded. He knows that the true king of glory is coming. Because the truth of the gospel, right, really confronts us then. If Christ really is this king who died for the world and is coming to redeem the world, well, it confronts us on a couple of levels. On the one hand, it confronts us, it reminds us that the world is worse than we think it is. Right? Some of us have that mistake. I think I have that air often where I think I don't, I'm not terrified enough, right? You can look at the world and think that everything's going okay. Look, there's a lot of common grace. Everything's fine. You know, every, it, it, it's not that bad. It's really bad, right? We need to be confronted by the monsters of our age. We need to look at the devastating results of everything around us. Nothing is untouched by this. Right, the way that our economy is run, the way that politics are run, the, the, the devastation that the, the church and religion has done. I mean, it, it, there is just death and destruction and chaos everywhere. And we are having a hand in it. Right, the gospel reminds me of that. Christ had to die to reconcile it, which tells me right, that this world needed reconciliation desperately, that there needs to be peace. Well, if he purchased the peace, that tells me, right, that reminds me of how how there is no peace outside of Christ and how there is no peace in this world, that there is just an endless, endless cycle of pain and hurt and war, right? I mean, do I have any hope that, that this president will be able to keep me safe? Do I have any hope, right, that this war will be the last war, that this will be? No, of course not. We are far worse off than we ever thought. This world is run by monsters and beasts, and I should expect it to get worse. I should expect our governments and things to be run in that way. But then I'm also confronted with the fact that the world is actually far more loved and redeemed and better off than my worst fears are. Because for some of us, we can just be in total depression and total fear and total anxiety about this world and fear the beast and fear the monsters and fear the governments and fear... No. I also know that Christ has redeemed those very things that are so terrible in this world. And that I know that He is the one who sits in judgment and that He has limited their rule over this world. And that I don't have to be the one to limit it, to stop it. That He is... That this world will be our home. That Christ is coming again to make this our home. So we have to ask ourselves, right, when we hear these images, when we see these pictures, let the imagery soak in, right? Let your mind be renewed by the gospel. 
This is going to be all the way through the New Testament. This is, this is the primary way in which right, we find hope. If you struggle, if you struggle with this world, with those extremes, are you overly pessimistic? Are you eager for the world to be terrible? You know, do you want the monsters? Do you want everyone to be bad? Do you have a hard time believing that anything is reconcilable, that there could ever be peace? Let the image of Christ as King and His image of coming again and everybody bowing down before Him, including these monsters, right, settle into your heart. And if you are on the other standpoint where you have a hard time seeing the image that things are hard, if you have a hard time being sympathetic, right, if your heart doesn't break for the poor and the vulnerable, the oppressed and the persecuted, here and abroad, right, let the price of the cross, right, break you. Let the hurt and the pain that people are feeling at the expense, right, of us and of the systems that are in place, the institutions that are doing such harm, let that break you, but not without losing hope, because I know who the true king is. Renew your mind with the picture of the Son of Man coming in glory, who has reconciled all things and who will make all things new. Every tear will be dried. Every king will bow down. Every king. Read that image. Read Isaiah 60. Read these images, these images of the end. Everyone, every loud horn of our age, these boastful, prideful men and women, every one of them will bow down before the king. And we will be given the kingdom and it will never end. All of the pain, all of the suffering will be worth it. All of the persecution of the saints. Nothing is beyond His power and authority. Look to the day of Christ and let it change you. Imagine the day. Keep the images in front of you. Right? And view the time in which we live properly. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that you are coming again in glory. Help us. Help us to imagine that day, to think of that day, to stop being so easily seduced by the images of this world. Of, help us not to be overly afraid or overly comfortable with the world that we live in. Lord, but help us to see you and to have our hearts changed. Lord, we're eager for the day when you come. So, Lord, please, come quickly. Lord, come today and make all things right. Lord, help us to work towards that day. Help us to love those around us. Help us to serve and to love the city without losing hope, knowing that you have redeemed our sinful institutions just as much as you've redeemed the saints. Lord, be with us. Guide us and direct us. Strengthen us to know your love. In your name we pray. Amen.